Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. So today on the Talking Biotech podcast, I'm here today talking with uh, one of my students, uh, Kiana Elliott. Hi, Kiana. Hi. <laughs> and um, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Ashley Winslow. And uh, Dr. Winslow had a paper come out recently in Nature Genetics that discusses the uh, association of specific loci in the in the uh, human brain with. Um, well, not just in the human brain, the human genome, right, um, with depression. And we'll talk to her in just a few minutes. But first, we'll talk to Kiana. So, Kiana, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, I am a fourth-year horticulture major at the University of Florida. I've been working in your lab for uh, two years now through the Ronald E. McNair Scholars Program. Um, else do you want to know? Well, tell me about the McNair Scholars Program. Okay, awesome. So uh, the McNair Scholars Program was made in honor of Ronald E. McNair, who was an astronaut who uh, tragically passed away in the Challenger explosion. So the program is a federal trio program um, in his honor designed to help underrepresented students obtain their PhD. So they provide support, um, research experience, and some funding to help you get there. Yeah, and that's what's really cool is the um, support is such a huge part of this. And it's not just support like here's some money, go to school. Yes. It is such a wonderfully elegant um, training uh, support. And uh, the people in the program have been super. And I, I just loved watching like the other day. They had a research symposium and uh, uh, you didn't present this year, but but many other students did. Yeah. And just how polished and how, such great talks for undergraduates. Mm-hmm. I mean, these were like graduate school, postdoc level talks. So, so tell me a little bit more about the training you get through that program. So the program provides a lot of different uh, ways of supporting students. So uh, we have funding to go to different conferences. Last uh, January, I was able to go to the Plant Animal Genome Conference with you and present my research there. They help you 
learn the best way to navigate applying to the applying to graduate schools and also uh, giving you the opportunity to really get more experience and presenting your research at different conferences so uh, like you were saying the the students who had the opportunity to present their research this year at the symposium they sit down with you and give you tips about how to present listen to you practice your presentation over and over again so that it can be polished and so that you do gain those skills of uh, presenting. No, so very nice. How, so where, where are you from originally and how did you get started in science? I'm originally from Fort Lauderdale. I got started in science my sophomore year of high school because I was taking a research class uh, taught by my biology teacher, Miss Rhonda Flynn. And uh, I, I, my very first science experiment was on the antimicrobial function of spices. So I got to play around with E. coli and peppermint and rosemary and see uh, the ability of the spices to inhibit bacterial growth. And then I was able to work with a UF IFAS extension researcher in Davie, Florida for two years in entomology and nematology. And I competed in science fair competitions. I made it to international science fair and was able to place fourth there. And so I, I've been involved and fell in love with research at an early age. That's really nice. And you've been to the White House twice. Yes, I have. <laughs> I, I got to meet President Obama twice. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. You know how many times I've met him? How many? Zero. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's but, a pretty awesome experience. <laughs> is he as nice a guy in person as he... He is uh, awesome. He's really tall, too. Really? Yeah, he is. He looks tall. He look, I, I didn't realize how tall he was until he was right in front of me. So it, it's cool to see him in person and shake his hand. Well, that's pretty cool. So see, so, so I, get to, I get to work with these famous people who are hobnobbing with the president. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> Well, this is really a great opportunity today because we're going to talk to Dr. Ashley Winslow. And uh, you looked at her LinkedIn profile. I'm so impressed with her. I'm just, I was drooling over all the accomplishments (laughs) that she has. Yeah, so this is a great person for you to talk to as kind of a young woman in science kind of moving up through this whole process. And what's really cool is, well, we won't talk about that. We won't talk about our punchline (laughs) about why this is so cool. Save it for later. Yeah, we'll save it for later. Today on Talking Biotech, it's really exciting to be able to talk to Dr. Ashley Winslow. She's Director of Neurogenetics at uh, Orphan Disease Center, which sounds really cool. And uh, that's at the at, uh, University of Pennsylvania Medical School. She's also the CEO, CSO of the Lulu Foundation. So, uh, Dr. Winslow, thank you for joining us on Talking Biotech. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, our pleasure. It's nice to be able to talk to you because we... Uh, have looked at your recent work and really think of uh, the way that we, we on the podcast we haven't talked much about association genetics and so this really seemed to be a good way for us to start moving into this because it spoke of ways in which you're starting to find genetic correlates with uh, of physiology or reporting of depression so can you um, talk about that a touch? Like, is this just people feeling the blues, or is this like hardcore manifestations of uh, depression? It's a great question. We, there's a few answers to that question. There, there's the answer to that in the context of our study, which I'll come back to in a second. But there's also the context of, of what depression means societally and clinically versus, um, you know, more subjective, kind of just, you know, I'm not feeling great today. Uh, when I... It led this study, I was at Pfizer working in our human genetics group um, focused on neuroscience. And so we really were 
most focused on kind of clinical presentation depression. Um, and that's usually referred to as depressive disorder. And that's a real concrete entity, um, not, not to minimize other manifestations, but this is, uh, we really want to focus on people with a severe recurrent depression, uh, which is usually cognitively and functionally debilitating. And so we hadn't seen results in, in other studies, uh, other association studies for depression. Um, those were clinically ascertained populations. Uh, but once we realized that the 23andMe research database, which this study focused on, had collected unprecedented numbers, we started to ask the question, well, does self-reported depression, exactly as you stated, just relate to someone feeling the blues or someone really manifesting a clinical depression? So the important distinction in our study was the question specifically stated, have you been diagnosed with depression? And or are you currently or in the past been treated for depression? So while there is, um, there are questions around the subjectivity of self-report, we, we were very careful to focus on, as much as we could, clinical diagnosed depression. And, and you mentioned this comes from the 23andMe database. And so just for people who are not familiar with this, is this the thing where you sign up online and spit in the tube and send it in the mail and they send you back a report about you know your lineage and uh, kind of your um, potential for different diseases or drug sensitivities? Is this what they're talking about? Yeah, yeah. This is um, this is this is a subset of that data. Uh, so it's a it's a consumer genomics service. And once you send in your saliva and they take out the DNA, uh, you have the option if you want of answering a huge range of questions from your medical history to your hair color to your ethnic background. Um, and you can opt into allowing your data to be used for research purposes. Uh, the kind of normal function is if you don't opt into it, you know, most people, it's, it's, it, if you don't specifically elect, then your data is, is not used for research purposes and not shared for studies like this. So uh, they have a huge database, uh, very motivated individuals that are willing to contribute their data for research purposes. So we are really excited to see the numbers um, that we had access to. So can you tell us more about the ways that clinical depression is currently treated? Yeah, so we, we, I would say we have a relatively limited knowledge of the underlying biology of depression. Um, most of our current treatments and understanding focus around neurotransmitter um, theories for depression. And, and we've had some successful treatments uh, with SSRIs and SNRIs, and those are uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. And these generally treat uh, or focus on modulation of release of norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamines, pathways that we um, mainly from mouse studies and, and some human understanding, think really are central to depression. So by using a genomics approach, what else can be learned? I mean, how, why is this kind of study even possible? Uh, well, the, the really exciting learning from this study is by looking across the entire genome, we can go in, you know, eyes, eyes wide open, saying in a completely unbiased way, what in the entire genome associates with disease? Um, so instead of being driven by this pre 
kind of known biology around neurotransmitter release, we are potentially under uncovering a new, completely novel biology that we didn't know uh, contributed to depression. So I would say that this can point us to new biological understanding of disease, um, and ideally, uh, hopefully down the line, that new biological understanding would would evolve into better therapeutics to affect that specific biology. Yeah, maybe I can follow up with something on that, is that we're talking about association genomics and association genetics. And really all this means is is that nowadays we have such a strong ability to sequence DNA that you can you can do this 23andMe thing. I did it. You spit in the tube, they extract the DNA, and they sequence your genome and look for specific differences. And uh, that, that, that maybe set one person's uh, DNA off from another. And what they look for are, and this is really very generic description, but just for those listeners who aren't scientists, they look for the differences in DNA that also correlate with some aspect of your other reported biology. So if everybody, well, I'll use my family for example, it says that um, I carry alleles for obesity, that I carry alleles for um, uh, alcoholism, I carry alleles for lots of different um, diseases that if I go back, you know, heart disease, if I go back through my family tree and I can see, well, you know, that kind of, I can see where that would fit. I think that those things have popped up in different parts of, of the family tree here and there. And um, and is there, um, and, and so it allows us to take a genetic sequence difference or the single nucleotide polymorphism, a single difference in the A's, G's, C's, and T's, and say that when we have this disease presentation, this position in the DNA always is this, and it's a variant from what we normally see. So that's kind of very broadly what we're looking at here. So tell us more about the design of the study. Uh, what was the number of participants, and why is that number important? So we had in uh, we had a few phases of the study. In the first, what we call the discovery phase we had 75,000 people reporting a diagnosis or treatment for depression. Um, we compared the genomics, the, 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 ge- the entire genome for that group with the genome for uh, our controls, those specifically reporting no history or no diagnosis of depression. So it was actually an active reporting, um, which can, can be a, an important bias in studies like this. Um, so we compared that to 230,000 with no history of depression. The, late, the study that had um, previous study trying to look at clinical ascertainment of depression had previously reached 9,000. So we're almost reaching 10 times as many individuals. And that previous study in um, a European background Found, found no significant associations. Uh, so it's a numbers game. We, because depression is a complex disease, it, meaning it's probably many different uh, genes, mutations, kind of acting together or interacting with the environment rather than a monogenic disorder, which has one known mutation that determines disease. We're looking for very complex, small effects across the genome. And so you need much, much larger populations in order to accurately, adequately, statistically power those studies. So what are some of the results that were found? Uh, so we, 
we, in looking at our discovery uh, population set, we had some significant findings that we did downstream validate in a replication data set, and that was another 45,000 individuals um, independent from the first data set and another 100,000 individuals controls. And this is where we got excited um, once we realized that our original findings did replicate in, a, in another independent set of people. Um, what we ended up seeing across, and there was a third data set, just to get a little nitty-gritty, we, we looked at also that clinically ascertained data set, which was publicly available, which is, is really important that, that uh, we could use that data set. So looking across all, all of our uh, data, we realized that there were 15 different regions and that's uh, representing 17 different changes. So some of those changes, we had multiple changes in one region. So that's why you have this kind of difference between 15 and 17. We found 15 different regions across the genome that associated with a change in risk for depression. Um, and the amount of risk conferred by one individual change, um, each, each one of those 15 different regions, is relatively small. To give you an idea, one of our top findings only changed um, someone's risk by about 5%. Uh, so it, that's why we really call it a complex numbers game. You really have to look at huge numbers in aggregate in order to start to see real significant associations. And my guess is, is that you would also maybe see an effect of multi-genes, multiple genes or multiple loci contributing to something that is a complex trait like uh, like depression, right? Yes. Yeah, I think that would be, that's really where you start to get into interesting science is how do some of these genes interact with one another to amplify that risk? Or um, there's some really interesting studies into disease subtypes kind of going to the other end of the spectrum instead of lumping everyone together. We look at specific subtypes of disease um, and what one study that had been successful prior to ours in this area was looking at a Chinese population of women with very severe depression, and they did find two significant associations in their kind of subtype I guess the other big question would be then, since the genome is already sequenced and you're seeing these uh, polymorphisms occurring, are they happening in genes that could be playing roles in uh, specific a uh, facets of, say, neural development or, uh, you know, any receptors or anything like that? Potentially. Uh, we're, what you, I think what a lot of biologists had hoped once we started doing these studies is, is you'd expect to see the genes that we, that we saw from our biological understanding at the time represented in these data sets. And what's really interesting and not, not all that specific to depression is you, <laughs> biology might be a bit biased. Um, we probably only know the tip of the iceberg. And so we don't see, um, and, and we really have to kind of dig in the, into the data and uh, integrate bioinformatic kind of understanding gene expression to really start to know which genes are being marked in these regions. But we're not seeing obvious um, serotonin uh, receptors and, and and some of the neurotransmitter dogma that's that's been the basis of depression understanding aren't being seen, obviously, in our data set. So what we do see is um, and it's important distinction. We we can't yet identify the genes in these regions. We've we have kind of landmarks 
saying that there's an association that kind of points to this area, saying something's, something's going on here, but there may be five or six different genes in that area. So we, But now the downstream task of, of scientists is to start to pick apart those regions and identify which of and those relevant genes matter. Well, I guess that's depression. kind of, uh, as, you know, as a biologist, yeah, you're right. You know, we do have the bias in that we're comparing what you're finding versus everything we know rather than what else could be out there. And um, I think what maybe just for the listener, that when we're looking at these association studies, you're finding this difference, this polymorphism, this thing called a SNP, in the neighborhood of, um, it could be something that's in the neighborhood of a gene or gene variant that associates with a given disease or disorder. It doesn't actually have to change that gene. It's nice when it does. And um, so what, what, what happens next in terms of, like, why would this even be important to be able to understand the genes or genic areas that are important for uh, a, a certain disease or disorder? Well, so in the case of depression in our study, um, some of the genes that we're suspecting in these regions have uh, known effects on transcriptional events, so maybe changing the expression of other genes. Uh, we have some genes that we know have functions in neurogenesis, so the birth of neurons and rebirth when they're when that pr- process is underway. So um, these are events that may have been suspected or, or suggested in previous studies, but it hasn't been the core of our understanding of depression. So I think the possibility that we're looking at transcriptional uh, regulation or neurogenesis and we're seeing this in an unbiased approach to the disease uh, is really exciting. And, and this will, will lead to, I think, a more holistic understanding of what causes the disease. So now that you have all of the information from this study, what happens next? How do you use this information? So the, the, the marking, that kind of landmark presence of that SNP uh, tells us, you know, something, something's going on. Look in this region. So what oftentimes, um, and this will be not just one group, this will be kind of years of analyzing these data by different groups with different um, skill sets and tools they can apply to uh, genetic understanding, looking at kind of integrating bioinformatics into um, these regions. Nowadays we talk about big data. You know, and people hear this term thrown around quite a bit. But I think this paper really shows us, uh, or the study really shows us, how you can use a huge database to find out potentially f- functional information that can eventually lead to new therapies. Yes, absolutely. And there's, there's some really nice data sets that have been created um, by academic collaborations, uh, and pharma is often involved in those as well, where... It's creating data sets that look at, in the normal human genome, can we identify them, those landmarks that associate with gene expression? So not looking at the association with, with disease, but with gene expression. And what's really cool is that type of big data can now be layered on top of our disease data. And we can say, well, does ours maybe associate in the same area with that change in expression? And so this can lead to really new hypotheses around the molecular 
uh, function in these areas, and that can keep being built upon into kind of that functional genomic space, and and maybe at some point down the, the stream, you you layer in clinical data. So it's we're starting to collect these just really great data sets that we can now start to to layer in and understand what's going on at the molecular level. Well, it's really exciting to see what's going on and how well you, how well you're doing in in your work, and and really the exciting things that come from these kinds of association studies. So let's uh, take a quick break for a second. We'll stop here for a moment. We'll come back on the other side with Dr. Ashley Winslow, Linslow, uh, Director of Neurogenetics and orphan Dise- at the Orphan Disease Center at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. We'll be back with Talking Biotech in just a moment. Hello, Talking Biotech aficionados. Thanks for listening. We continue this enterprise with the hope of spreading the infection of science. It's a curious pathogen that, when you contract it, makes you immune to nonsense and poor quality information. (laughs) Like cupping. (laughs) Well, now we need you to step up and be a shill for big podcast. Go to the place where you download podcasts and write a review for Talking Biotech. It can be positive. It can be negative. I don't care. Just share your thoughts, because that's the only way that I can get better at doing this. Suggest guests. Suggest guest hosts. Suggest a topic that you just want to understand better. Remember, this podcast is fueled by the kind interest of a wonderful audience, and your feedback helps keep us relevant and happy. (laughs) Now, we've elected to not entertain sponsors or solicit donations. So your good vibrations fuel my groove. And remember, remember, tell a friend, write a review. And now, back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And we're back with Talking Biotech, talking today with uh, Dr. Ashley Winslow, Director of Neurogenetics at the Orphan Disease Center at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. You know, another reason I really wanted to have you on is because um, I, uh, I wanted Kiana to guest host with me to ask you more questions of the roles of women in science and some of the specific challenges that may come along with that. Uh, my long-term goals are to find ways of using transgenic crops to help people in developing nations, so addressing issues of food insecurity worldwide and I don't know, uh, I know that I'm definitely going to go to graduate school and I I want to obtain a a PhD, but I'm not sure what type of job availabilities will be there once I'm done. Um, What is your current job now and how did you know that that's what, that's the kind of work you wanted to do? So I currently work at the Orphan Disease Center um, at UPenn and what's really exciting about this job, relatively new. Um, I was coming from uh, Pfizer previously in Boston, so there was a big decision whether to move to Philadelphia and kind of shift a little bit. Um, So I work at the Orphan Disease Center, as I mentioned, which we have a focus on rare disease. And what's really exciting that I get to do every day is um, with the diseases that I'm working with, I get to try try to find better ways to get scientists interested in doing rare disease research try to accelerate uh, the clinical path for these diseases. Uh, rare diseases are, are hugely underrepresented, um, mainly by their definition. Um, they're, they're, they're rare. Um, it's hard to get scientists really interested in doing 
research on rare disease because uh, we don't know a lot about maybe the biology. Um, they're not the, the big common diseases that kind of garner grant money as easily. Um, and at pharmaceuticals, while there is a, a, a real renewed interest in looking to rare disease, it's hard to think about kind of the economics of treating rare disease and, and it can be hard to identify enough patients within that population even to just run clinical trials. And, and, and the academics and, and pharma are really starting to rethink this and I think there's been some really interesting um, ways that pharma is starting to, to get interested in this space and really focus on how we can develop better therapeutics and meet this unmet need. Um, but I think my role, uh, why I stepped away from pharma to, to work on this was the center I work in, uh, we operate, we're an academic-based entity, but we work between patient advocacy groups, academia, and pharma. And we try to bring all those groups to the table early to generate interest, um, to strategize on how we can accelerate research in these areas, how we can involve pharma early on so that things can move a lot faster than they have in the past. And um, I have the the uh, kind of environment here that allows me to be really innovative in how I approach um, those obstacles and try to work with the community to overcome them. That's, it sounds like a, a real different kind of job because I understand what you're talking about, about the uh, orphan diseases. I, I have a friend who has a very rare kind of cancer, and for her to find treatments for that specific problem uh, is really difficult because she has to get lumped in with other studies of you know, new drugs or you know, new therapies, um, which is a real challenge. But uh, let's go back maybe a little bit to your um, your life as as a woman scientist. Now you've gone through undergraduate, graduate school, you know, and other training, postdocs. Have you had any unique challenges that you think um, really were gender associated? You know, I I think I went in a little naive in, into adulthood um, and, and approaching kind of my career development path, thinking the glass ceiling had been shattered, and um, you know, it's. It, this was no longer an issue, um, and, and that was mainly the product of having uh, two sisters, um, great parents, and, and, and having a family environment that really said, you know, the sky's the limit. There's, there's, don't ever let anyone else get in your way. Um, but then, kind of entering the workforce on my own, I, I guess one advantage is I, I didn't look for it because I didn't expect it to be there. Um, but then I was kind of blindsided every once in a while when it would crop up. Um, I have had the unfortunate uh, experience of having comments made about me physically, about um, how I dress, how I should interact with others to get things done. Um, so I would, I, I, you know, it's unfortunate, but it's there. And I would say that's been um, all along my career development path. Um, so it, I, I do think that there is uh, there are a number of individuals out there who still kind of play into those those stereotypes. I wouldn't say it's the majority. I would I, I can name those few individuals on one hand, but it is more than one person. It's more than one experience. It's been in more more than one country and been in more more than one uh, career environment. So it's a challenge. Um, there have been points where that has gotten 
in the way more than one would hope. Uh, and I've had to kind of think of innovative ways to, to approach those issues uh, directly or indirectly. I've had to lean on my, uh, my support network and, and really ask both men and women around me that I trusted as advisors and mentors and, a, you know, many of those in unofficial capacities for advice. And I would say that that's really important is to have people you can talk to about this. And while it is a challenge to women, I would say that it's not an exclusive conversation with just women. I think men... Um, should be involved in these conversations and this can be really important for them and participating in those conversations as well. No, I, I agree a hundred percent and it's it's as a you know and as a guy who feels rather enlightened, I know that I still you know like I don't I don't make any egregious errors, but I find certain things that I have done that I look back on, I realize did have some bias in them in that like for instance I had a great postdoc who was wonderful and she was doing great work and things were really going fast and she came to my office door one day she knocked on the door and says i have great news i'm having a baby <laughs> and and the first thing that went in my mind wasn't congratulations it was oh no now the work is going to stop and i wouldn't and for me to think that really does show a lack of sensitivity and a lack of awareness of this is a you know natural progression for for uh you know women and men to become parents but only half of them have to deal with the nine months of carrying that child and it it was just a bias that i'm a little bit ashamed of at the time but um how do you think we fix these things other than by bringing guys into the equation are there ways that um do women serve as important role models for maybe younger women coming up through science Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, I think there's there's many ways to tackle it. it, it having these conversations, um, I used to mentor a group of women, um, and, and I do this informally. I've done this informally throughout my career, um, and, and it's it's important not to, I would say, actively look for this. Uh, it's to be aware and not be naive. And if something egregious is or something's blatantly being not being afraid to say something about it and point it out. Um, it's also bringing them into the conversation and, and having open, honest conversations. Um, I was actually in this mentoring group that I was a part of. I was mentoring six women, and I had very pointedly said to the organizers, I think you, I think you really need to make an effort to have at least one session uh, where we can identify male mentors to have this conversation with, because I think there's they're as important to the equation as women are. Um, and not just because men are kind of pointed out as having these tendencies, but just to understand both sides of the story and, and these subconscious prejudices that may be in place. I, I also think it's not specific to men as far as the, uh, uh, the people that initiate it. Women can often have a bias against women as well, um, and it's important to be aware of that and make sure that you aren't um, kind of falling into those same practices at a subconscious level. No, excellent point. So I have to say, uh, I used the holy grail of information for millennials, and I Googled you earlier, and <laughs> I, I was so impressed by your career path and, and all of the things that you've done in science. 
And I just really think that for me as a woman who's just starting out her career in science, I am really inspired by you. And I, I do think that you're a great role model for other women who uh, seek careers in science. So I just wanted to ask you, what is your best advice for young women who are seeking careers in science, especially non-academic positions? Well, first of all, thank you. Uh, it's extremely uh, flattering, and I really, really appreciate that. Um, I would say for those seeking career advice, um, find out what you love, what what gets you interested um, in research or about your career. So I, I very early on in, when I went to college, it wasn't, I guess, as accessible. Re- doing research in the lab wasn't as accessible as it is today, but I realized I really wanted to do research, and so I, I sought that out and um, had the advantage of having a great uh, supervisor introduce me to that space um, and say, you know, here, here's a lab. It's your playground. Um, and when I then decided I wanted to do a PhD, I, I considered doing an MD PhD, and I think one of the most important parts of every point of my career where I've transitioned, I've sat down and talked to people about that interest and about what that means, what the day-to-day career is, what, what, the, um, what the possibilities are, what skill sets are really important. Uh, and, and I actually quickly realized as much as I really wanted to do human research on disease, that was kind of my big drivers, I, I really wanted to be in the lab. Um, I really wanted to do the research. I really wanted to sit down and look at the questions and really commit my life to that. So I would say it's important to find what are your foundation pieces, what really drives you. Focus on those and then talk to people um, who have careers that intersect with those foundation pieces. And that is going to give you a more holistic understanding of the possibilities um, gives you an idea of you know if you don't want to sit at a desk all day it gives you an important just real reality check on whether that makes sense um, and it, it it lets you start to think about different facets of how you could apply your skill set so talk to as many people as you can think innovatively think broadly um, sometimes scientists get a little bit myopic and um, go down a career path that's just being a professor. Uh, There's so many possibilities out there, and academics are absolutely a foundation of science, but it's not the only thing you have to do with a PhD. I think there's so many other options. But I'd also say you don't have to fully plan out your career ahead of time. I didn't know I was going to go into pharma when I was an academic. I didn't know I'd come back to kind of an academic environment after pharma. I focused on what were kind of core important things that I wanted in my life, and I've taken advantage of the opportunities that have presented themselves. Um, and, and that's my approach. It doesn't work for everybody, but an ability to remain somewhat flexible can, can sometimes have some really important advantages in your career development. Well, I guess that, you know, I, we tried really hard not to spill the beans, but I guess I ought to uh, get to the punchline of today's podcast. Well, one of the punchlines. Um, you and Kiana share something in common. What is that? Uh, we have both uh, worked as you as a supervisor. How about that? So you were in my lab. Like, what years were you in my lab? 2003 to 2006, I think. Yeah, so this, this is like this is like um, uh, like that Paul Harvey 
radio show. <laughs> and that girl may be. <laughs> Who knew she would grow up to be? <laughs> this is like our reunion tour here. It really it's is. Very it's, exciting. It's really cool. It was so fun to see a paper come out with your name on it in Nature Genetics. You know, it's like it's it's like when my former students are publishing in the best journals. That's kind of good thing. Uh, makes me kind of misty. I'm sitting over here like frosting up here in front of Kiana. But um, let's talk a little bit more about about you know your uh, experience through school and some of those things. Because one of the things that I remember about you was that you were when you were in my lab. It was all about med school, and you really were you know focused like a laser beam. And I remember when you went when you said we started doing research were really clearly very good at it and had just like the total propensity to pull off research. And so you incorporated that into your plan with going for MD, PhD. But do you remember your interviews and what happened? I, I think I tried to black those out. So maybe you have a better memory. <laughs> I think you, I, I remember you coming back and saying that when you told them that you wanted to do the MD, PhD, that they really suggested you just do the MD. Yeah, that's right. And so that here they were trying to talk you out of the research, and that was really turned into really your central passion, um, and eventually what you would do. So, um, what? what um, and, and the other thing that was really cool, I remember, was you really had your sights set on a medical-oriented, um, maybe neurological PhD track. The thing that I thought was so cool about that was that. You applied and got accepted, but you had no guarantees. And you were accepted in uh, Cambridge, right, UK? Yes, yes. And, um, but you didn't have any guarantees going in in terms of uh, support or anything, but you went for it. And, uh, you know, was, was that a real nerve-wracking time for you? Yeah, it was. Um, so I, Cambridge had, and it may have shifted nowadays, but at the time Cambridge had a unique kind of rolling um, admissions uh, PhD track. So you could, at least in certain departments, you could apply to work um, in that department at any point in the year. Um, and so I, I started looking at programs that really had a focus on kind of medical application of genetics. And I found, interestingly enough, uh, a medical genetics program at the University of Cambridge. And so I I started doing research on all the professors in that department, and I talked to a few of them, and I ended up um, really kind of uh, having a huge interest in um, my PhD supervisor, David Rubenstein, who had also a neurofocus. And I, I really just always found neuroscience very interesting, and I kind of was always pulled in that direction. Um, the problem was, as much as that was really nice to have rolling admissions, and you could go whenever you want, that you still most grants and funding started at certain cycles in the year. Um, and I had missed the cycle for the following year. And so I had a real debate as to, well, okay, do I, do I, you know, take the chance and I talk to, to David and so what are the options? And he said, you know, well, we can try a few things, but you know, if you want to start now, we're, it, it may be a little bit risky. So, um, we talked, we strategized, we talked about it. Um, I ended up, saying, you know, let, let's try it. Um, I had the unique advantage of not paying for undergrad at University of Florida because I had a full, um, I can't remember the name of it, the, they had a, and hopefully they still have some yeah, great bright programs, future. bright future. So I had 
fully funded. And, and so I had some money saved up just to kind of get me through that first period of time, um, help for my parents a bit as well. And so luckily when I got there, uh, we really started trying to find grants and funding and I was able to piece a lot of things together. Um, and it ended up, it ended up working out well. <laughs> it would have been a very short PhD, uh, not culminating in a PhD if it hadn't, but I kind of just said, let's take the risk. Um, it was one, you know, I felt like it was once in a lifetime opportunity that I couldn't pass up. I didn't want to wait another year for, so got impatient. What advice would you give to someone like me who is just starting out and looking into graduate programs? I would say start early, so you don't have to take that risk that I did. Um, but, but in all seriousness, start looking at it early. Look at the structure of the programs, what they offer, if they allow you to rotate through labs, because that's really, um, that I think could be is important and something was at Cambridge although I knew I wanted to go into that lab it would have been nice to see what were in other labs and they've now instituted a rotation for PhD students coming in but I think um, that feature is really great uh, you can really see a lot of different things um, exposure to a lot of different skill sets and types of science and approaches um, look at the structure of the programs look how many years most of the people are taking in their PhDs and where are they going afterwards? Do they have opportunities um, that align with what you're, you're interested in? But still keep in mind, you can be innovative. You don't have to follow that predetermined path. Um, but just make sure that it's something you really, really find interesting. Don't settle for just kind of going into it, hoping that you'll love what you're doing. It, it, it's hard. I've seen people really struggle with PhDs that they their hearts weren't in. And uh, I would have to say I actually really loved my PhD um, work. It's not easy, but I think if you love what you're doing, then that will get you through it. It's actually kind of interesting. Like, you see that blue book on the shelf over there, Kiana? Yeah. That's her dissertation. Oh, my gosh. I, I got it sitting here. I remember getting that in the mail and thinking, that is so cool. <laughs> and, you got uh, me into this. Well, I, you know, that, that means a lot, I'll tell you. Oh, of course. <laughs> I really mean it. You, you, you got me into this biz. And I don't, I have to say, I don't, I'm so glad that it's becoming more standard um, to have undergraduate research be a part of, you know, be accessible. Um, you know, I, I think when I kind of went through that process, I, I I didn't know a lot of people that were doing that at the same time, and it would just... Did I ever tell you, Kevin, I looked at all these different labs, and I sent a bunch of inquiries, um, and you're the only one that said, okay, yeah, you don't have to wash dishes. You can actually do research. And that, that was just an amazing, amazing, you know, to have that possibility, so... Uh, you know, I, I still don't like people that come in and wash dishes as researchers. I want them to uh, do research and I want dishwashers to wash dishes. Some <laughs> people want to do that. So, yeah. you know, we, we had a really good time. That was a, that was a, uh, it was a lot of fun back then. It was a really good crew in the lab. I had no idea what I was doing. I was still trying to figure <laughs> out how the heck to be a professor and write grants. And, but, um, you know, you were a big part of that team and it's really awesome to see you going on to, to big, really nice things. So awesome that you're, um, uh, this is a great opportunity to talk today. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Winslow, I never called you that. Um, <laughs> how cool. Where, um, if people want to talk to you more about this or any of these issues or any guidance that you might have from your unique perspective as a woman in science, where can they find you or uh, maybe find you on social media? 
Uh, so I have a I do have a Twitter account, uh, and that's Ashley R Winslow. It's a fairly new account, so it's not as much going on. But actually, I would take the uh, opportunity to point out there. I, I've highlighted a really interesting um, development as of earlier this week. Um, Massachusetts has outlawed uh, salary history uh, being asked by future employers, which is actually just huge for. Um, dealing with the women's uh, gender wage gap issues mm. in the workforce. Um, but I also have an email address at awinslow, W-I-N-S-L-O-W, at mail.med, M-E-D, dot U-P-E-N, U-P-E-N-N, dot E-D-U. Okay, Kiana, where, where do we find you on social media? So I also have a Twitter, um, and my Twitter name is at Kiana Elliott, so it's K-I-O-N-A. And then E L L I O T T. Uh, I also have my email address, uh, Kiana E at UFL.edu. Ashley, so you're also the, the uh, CSO of the Lulu Foundation. What is that? So the Lulu Foundation is um, a, a foundation focused on progressing translational research and clinical progression and the understanding of CDKL5 deficiency. And this is a very rare uh, infantile seizure disorder, and it's one of the diseases that we're hoping to really affect change through partnership between Orphan Disease Center and the Lou Foundation. How's mom and dad doing? They're great. They're, they're wonderful. I'll tell them I said hello. I will. I will. So, Ashley, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your perspective on these uh, issues. Kiana, thank you very much for sitting in with me. Um, so thank you again, Ashley. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, so that's it for Talking Biotech from this week. Thank you very much for joining us. Remember to write a review on iTunes and uh, like this episode and uh, tell your friends about it. We're getting lots and lots of new listeners every week. So thank you very much. This is Kevin Fulta. Thank you for listening again. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to TalkingBiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.